Hello, and welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations that explore the work and ideas of authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded live, most of the time, in front of an audience. My name is Aidan Flax-Clark. This week, we have another interview with one of the five finalists for the library's Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism, Charlotte McDonald Gibson, whose book is called Castaway, True Stories of Survival from Europe's Refugee Crisis. Charlotte is Time Magazine's correspondent in Brussels, and she's also written for The Independent, The New York Times, and Newsweek, among others. This is her first book. For anyone who wants to better understand what it means to be one of the many millions of displaced people on our planet, the most since World War II, and specifically to be one of those people on the routes to Europe from Africa and the Middle East, steal yourself and read Castaway. The scope and magnitude of one of the most profound humanitarian crises of our time was something I really didn't appreciate until I read this book. It tells the story of a few of those millions of humans with clarity, restraint, and above all, humanity. 2016 was the deadliest year for crossing the Mediterranean. More than 5,000 people died. And 2017 is on track to be potentially worse. All of this has fueled a multi-billion dollar smuggling business that feeds on desperation, selling, in Charlotte's words, an impossible dream to people who had no choice but to believe the lies. And while politicians have felt able to lament the nameless dead, she writes, they have shown less empathy towards the nameless living seeking refuge on European soil. With all the abstract talk that we engage in here in this country around immigrants and refugees, I'm grateful to Charlotte for so deeply driving home the human experience of this crisis. And I'm grateful to you for listening. And I really do encourage you to go out and read this book, which again is called Castaway, True Stories of Survival from Europe's Refugee Crisis. So here's my conversation with Charlotte McDonald Gibson. She spoke to me over Skype from Brussels. I want to ask you about a news item I just read this morning, um, although it was written a few days ago. It says that a thousand refugees have drowned in the Mediterranean so far this year, which I believe is a record. And it's still this path in this article saying that's this path between Libya and Italy where people are still really dying. And I wonder if you can tell me what's going on in the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean in 2017 right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny if you if you read the the media, uh, you wouldn't think you think that the refugee crisis might have gone away. If you think about the the attention that it received in 2015, we had the peak of the arrivals in in Greece and all those images of of people crossing the Balkans, coming up to the richer northern European nations. It was in the news every day, and uh, now you know you don't read so much about it. It's, it's not nearly so so high profile. But the deaths are just soaring. We're getting record numbers. So in 2015, when it was very much in the media, uh, 3,771 people died that year. Last year, that went up to 5,085, an absolute record. There'd never been that many deaths in the Mediterranean. So the deaths just kept going up. And yeah, so far in 2017, there's been more than 1,000. So it's on track to be another year of record deaths. So, yeah, the problem, the, the issue hasn't gone away. The, the numbers arriving, however, are down. So what we're seeing is a, a greater number of deaths with less people arriving. And um, there are very many reasons why that is. Um, it's got to do with the changing um, tactics, mostly of, of the smugglers going from the Libyan uh, coastline to Italy, because this is the most dangerous stretch for refugees, migrants, asylum seekers uh, trying to reach Europe um, to go from Libya to Italy. It's an incredibly treacherous route, and um, two of the people featured in, in my book in Cast Away um, made that route, and only one of them made it without their ship going down. I think at one point 
during the, the peak of arrivals last year, there was something like a one in 30 chance that you would die on that route. And if you think about people making that decision to, to, to make that journey, it's, I find it so difficult to imagine how, how you can make that decision when you've got a one in 30 chance of dying. I mean, it, it really is extraordinary, um, the, 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 the death toll on that route. So, yes, this year has been absolutely horrendous. Um, what's um, interesting is you've really got a different profile of who's arriving in Italy and who is making that journey. So in 2015, at the peak of the, the, the crisis, it was, it was a lot of Syrians. So um, you had uh, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, would say that uh, around 86% of the people arriving in, in Europe in that year were from the top refugee-producing nations. So that's basically saying, well, they're essentially refugees, they're fleeing or they're fleeing, fleeing persecution. Now, it's a little bit more complicated now on that uh, Libya-Italy route. The figure is much, much lower. You are seeing more people from sub-Saharan African nations, which aren't in the grip of the same sort of war that you see in, in Syria or the same sort of persecution that you see in sort of Islamic State operated parts of, of Iraq. Um, you're seeing people from, from Nigeria, um, from Mali, from Senegal, um, from all sorts of different sub-Saharan African nations on these boats. And I think this, in a way, has contributed to the, the slightly more subdued media coverage of it. I mean, there's that idea of who's who's you know, who's worthy. I think this came up as well in your interview with Gary, that the worthy victim and the unworthy victim of gun crime in the US. And you have exactly the same um, paradox with, with the refugee crisis. So a lot of these people who are dying are not seen as, as worthy refugees because they're not coming from the most war-torn countries and they get less coverage. And I think that that was really um, very, very shocking because obviously a human life is a human life. It's worth the, the same as, as anybody else's. And the, the, the reasons they're coming are, are very complex, but they're still fleeing um, horrendous violence most of the time. So to explain a little bit about why you've got lots of people making this, this journey from Libya to Italy now, it's not necessarily people who have made this active decision to come to Europe to look for work. Um, for example, a lot of the people have come from poor sub-Saharan African nations to Libya in the belief that there is work in Libya, because over the years there has been a lot of work in Libya, especially under Colonel Gaddafi. Um, they had a huge sub-Saharan African workforce um, to work in the oil industry, construction. It, it was enormous. It was a huge migrant population there. And there's continued to be this belief that they can go to Libya and find work. And it's encouraged by the various uh, different militia and, and rival governments in Libya. So they have actively encouraged people to come to Libya. But what is actually going on in Libya is an immense smuggling racket. And what happens to most of these people when they arrive in Libya is that they're kidnapped, incarcerated, and, um, and there's extortion. So they, they have to pay, or their family has to come up with a certain amount of money, or they are um, they're beaten. Uh, there's been horrible reports of, of rape, sexual assaults. There was a, a report from a a German diplomat um, based in the region who said that executions were taking um, place in these detention centres in Libya, where if, um, if a migrant wasn't able to pay, they were executed to make the way for another migrant who could pay. And so you've got this horrible racket going on there. And so a lot of these people are then forced to go north to Europe because they can't go anywhere else. So that makes me want to ask a lot of questions, but I want to stay focused um, on Libya just for a second because I had seen another headline saying that this, what you say is a multi-billion dollar business smuggling, is helping to fund Libya's whatever you want to call it now, civil war, split government, um, but that this is actually contributing to the survival of the country in some way. Is that true? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a huge industry now, and this is one of the big problems when you have you know these sort of sweeping statements from Europe that well, we're going to we're going to tackle the smuggling industry, we're going to go to the root cause, and we're going to take on the smugglers. It's completely endemic across the country, and people's livelihoods, whole you know cities' livelihoods are now based on the smuggling industry. It has become so huge. And um, yes, absolutely. You have these, you know, I'm not an expert on, on Libyan politics, so I look at it all through the lens of, of, of the refugee policy. But yeah, you have these, these, these rival governments, you have various tribal and um, ethnic and other factions, um, you have various militia. I mean, Libya is utter chaos at the moment. It's utter chaos. Uh, you, you just, you know, there's, there's no government to really, for the EU or for, for Western governments that you're working with to try and tackle this problem, it's it's absolute chaos. And there's no sign of that um, changing any time in the future. And and so while there is this chaos that the smuggling industry, it just thrives, the smuggling and trafficking industry just absolutely thrives. And it's um it's absolutely horrendous. You look at, you know, every day there's there's more reports about the conditions in the detention centres. And, and they're just absolutely horrific. And the um, the scale of sexual abuse for, for women and, and, and young girls on that um in Libya now, people who may have been trafficked um, through Libya or came there of their own volition, not realising what they were getting into. I mean, there was a, another report um, out recently by by UNICEF, which said that um, teenage girls who are um, who pay smugglers to take them into Libya, they're being given contraceptive injections at the start of their journey, so that they can be basically raped throughout the journey without getting pregnant. I mean, that's mm. that's how you know horrendous it's it's become, and I think three quarters of all the women and girls that have then been um, questioned, the ones who have made it to Europe, said they experienced violence and sexual harassment. So, I mean, it's just appalling the situation there at the moment. So, you know, that is what a lot of people are, are escaping when they get on those boats to Europe. They'd much rather go home. A lot of them would much rather go back to sub-Saharan Africa um, and go home. But there isn't any smuggling routes that will take them in that direction because all the smuggling routes are geared north because that's where all the money is. And I think... The really shocking thing about the, the, what the conditions we're seeing in Libya is that we are seeing the EU, EU leaders and European leaders, talk about doing some sort of deal with Libya, talk about you know, working with the Coast Guard. They do um, train the Coast Guard and, and give funding to the Coast Guard. And this is essentially sending people back to these horrendous conditions, which I think is just another example of the, the European Union really compromising on its, on its values when it comes to this, this issue. I have a lot of questions about that. I do want to ask one more smuggling question, which is um, if you could help give a sense of the ecosystem of smuggling. And by that, I mean, you point out in your book that there is this multi-billion dollar business. The mafia has gotten involved to some extent. I read an article about allegations that certain NGOs are colluding with smugglers. Sure. I mean, first of all, I want to just pick up on that point of the charities colluding with the smugglers. This is a narrative that we've really been seeing emerging in the last few months, which is deeply, deeply worrying, because essentially what these charity boats are doing, you've got MSF there, you've got a few others, um, they're rescuing people who are going to drown. And this is the argument that, well, if they didn't rescue them, the smugglers wouldn't put them in the boats and um, they, they wouldn't be put at risk in the first place. And this is the idea that they're colluding with the smugglers somehow. And it's a really shocking allegation. And it's simply not true. And the statistics and experience have shown again and again and again that it's not um, a pull factor uh, that they're putting people in the sea. People aren't getting in boats, these really dangerous boats, and going to sea because they think somebody's going to rescue them. They're doing it because they don't think they have any other choice. And, um, you know, back in 2014, 
when uh, the, the, the Italians had a, a life-saving operation called Mare Nostrum on the seas. And um, for a year they ran and they, they really saved a, a lot of lives in that stretch between Libya and Italy. And um, they stopped in, in November 2014 um, because the rest of the European Union refused to basically give any financial assistance to it. And you again saw this argument, well, putting rescue boats in the sea encourages more people to come. It is essentially helping the smugglers. And so what you saw in um, the period from November to April 2015, so the six months after this marine operation, marine Nostrum operation finished, was 1,866 people dying on that stretch of water. The previous year, when marine Nostrum had been in operation, there were 108 deaths. So that was a direct result of stopping that, that search and rescue was 1,700 more deaths than there had been the year before because people kept coming. The people keep coming because they don't have any other choice. They're not coming because they think they're going to be rescued. So I think this is a really dangerous narrative that we've seen recently that somehow the charities are colluding with smugglers. They're not. And there's various data um, which shows that that's simply not the case. So I just wanted to make that point first because it's been something that's been really frustrating me and making me very angry of late. But on the smuggling things, it's just... It's all encompassing, those smuggling networks. I mean, they, they run from the, you know, the, the bigger, you know, the, the mafia, especially the, the sort of the organized crime um, syndicates in Turkey, for example. They're all getting in on it because there's, you know, as much, if not more money to be made from people smuggling, people trafficking than there is from, you know, the narcotics industry and the arms industry. essentially. So it makes sense that any established um, crime syndicate with a network will get involved. So they're all involved, but it also means, you know, it's it, it's not just that. It's an, it's an enterprising taxi driver on the, the serbian Kosovan border, or you know, who decides to make a couple of extra, you know, 100 euros by packing his car with uh, refugees and driving them a certain amount of, of distance. I mean, it, it, it really it goes from that sort of level to the syndicated level and, and to these stretching all the way down through sub-Saharan Africa to these towns like, you know, these towns on the border between Niger and where the entire economics of that town are based around the smuggling industry. So it's um, it's just vast. It's really very hard to get your head around. And again, it just shows how, you know, these promises that we get of, of tackling the smuggling industry. Well, you can't you just can't do that. It just isn't going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen for a very, very long time because it's now so ingrained in the economy of so many countries. So you mentioned earlier, and you call out in the introduction to your book, the hypocrisies that are at the heart of the EU when it comes to this refugee crisis. And I wonder if you can expand upon that idea a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, this was one of my real main motivations for, for writing the book originally, because I spent most of my career, I've been a journalist for 15 years now, and most of that time has been spent in the developing world. Most of it was spent in Asia, so starting in Cambodia, I lived in Thailand, reporting on Thailand and Burma and Cambodia. Then I was in Pakistan, Afghanistan. And all that time, I was really interested in refugee and migration issues and reported a lot on sort of illegal incarceration and conditions in refugee camps and all these sort of issues. But it, in my head, I, you know, I still saw Europe, the European Union as, as being the good place, you know, that the beacon of rights, which had learned from its past in the Second World War and, you know, upheld this, this idea of, of, of never again shall anybody be persecuted because of their beliefs or where they're from. And um, so when I returned to Europe, I came back to Europe in 2011, just as the Arab Spring was starting. And I started traveling around the continent, uh, looking at, you know, the refugee, asylum, migration issue in Europe. And I was really shocked to find exactly the same 
stories that I had in, in countries we, we would consider, you know, developing countries with more authoritarian governments, you know, I saw exactly the same things happening, which is the illegal uh, detention of people claiming asylum, um, what we call pushbacks, which is when somebody has enter the country and then, you know, by the, the, the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, they, they're meant to be able to then um, claim asylum. But a pushback is when they are removed to another country um, before that they have been, a, been allowed to make that asylum claim. And we've had allegations of this against Greece, pushing people back into international waters, um, same allegations from, from Italy, allegations against Bulgaria. So again, we've seen, I saw the same sort of issues. And I was really, really genuinely shocked by this because the EU continues to portray itself as this beacon of human rights for other countries to follow. It uses human rights in its sort of trade negotiations, um, in its incentives for other expansion when it's looking for other countries in Europe to join the EU. So this adherence to, to these core values of rights and dignity for all are really enshrined in it. Uh, but but you have these these, these blatant, violations of people's rights taking place on, on EU soil. So that really was one of my motivations, was it was a shock, it was a personal shock that I felt when I saw this happening on, on the European Union soil. And it's just got worse and, and worse and worse as the years have gone past. If we look at, you know, the, the scenes we've seen on the Hungarian border with Serbia in 2015, when there were, you know, literally images of children being tear gassed. This is on EU soil, pictures of screaming children the tear gas flying around them. I mean, it's just horrific. And then we look at the images we've seen from Greece over the winter, when you've seen refugees, people, you know, who, who have had their refugee status or will have refugee status recognised, living in the most appalling conditions. They're living in places where the toilets don't work, where there's no separation between male and female sharers, where, you know, it's a huge fire hazard because there's loads of tents packed into a former toilet roll factory. I mean, the conditions are just absolutely appalling in winter. Refugees were living in tents in the snow in the European Union. So you mentioned these allegations of pushback, and you talk about a number of places, Bulgaria, Greece, Malta, the island of Lampedusa, which is part of Italy, um, you know, systematically detaining refugees when they're not, you know, sending them away. And what what is some of the reasoning for doing that? Is there reasoning? Well, I mean, it's mostly, if you look at... Well, where governments do most things, really, which is which is politics and to play to the internal politics of a nation. And I think that's what we see over and over again when it comes to the refugee crisis. So that's one is that, you know, we've seen over the years a rise in anti-immigrant sentiments in populism in the far right in, in many, many countries uh, across Europe. And what the mainstream parties generally do is rather than stand up for these European values that we've spoken about is they just shift their own policies a little bit more to the right all the time. And, and it results in, in, in people who are fleeing war, fleeing persecution, um, ending up being the victims of this. So you do have um, people being incarcerated against their will and against various EU and international conventions. Um, if you look at Hungary, for example, I mean, that's incredibly, really, it's playing to the domestic political situation there. Uh, and you see that in various other places. It's also seen as a, as a deterrent to other people coming. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that most countries in the world want to be able to control their uh, migration policies, which is fine. I mean, every country has a, a right to defend its 
borders and to decide who comes and who doesn't. That is not something that, that I dispute. So there are some people who do dispute it and argue for free borders, but that's a, that's a completely different argument. But, you know, right now, I mean, a country has a right to decide who comes and, and lives there. So the idea being that they want to deter people making a, an illegal journey there for whatever reason, even if it's a, for a legally um, correct reason of claiming asylum. So by locking people away, pretty abysmal conditions the idea is that you deter more people from coming that they see um they they see images of 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 people living in tents and horrible conditions or behind bars and think well i'm not going to i'm not going to come to europe that's what they'll do to me so that is also um the thinking um behind uh, some of these policies but again uh some evidence shows that this doesn't work deterrence doesn't work because the motivations of people on on the way to europe over the last few years has been because they have no other choice left yeah, the young man that you chronicle um, from Nigeria, Majid, he's a perfect example of that. You know, he watched his father literally get hacked to death with an axe in his yard and had to leave Nigeria, went to Libya, and then was basically chased out of Libya. And, you know, w- what was he going to do? Yeah, I think Majid really illustrates that very well because he was happy. I mean, he goes against what the, the perception in in Europe is the perception in Europe is it's 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 all it's, it's arrogance really it's like well everybody wants to come here because it's you know it's this wonderful quality of life we've got all these jobs and they just everybody wants to live that you know a wonderful quality of life but that simply isn't the case if you look at Majid he was very happy in Libya um that was under the Gaddafi government and of course there were a lot of people in Libya who weren't very happy under the Gaddafi government but he was because he he got a job I mean he fled this terrible situation in Nigeria when he was just a, a, a young teenage boy and, um, you know, he, he smuggled himself to Libya to, to try and find work. And he had found work. He found decent work. He was living in a, 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 an apartment with very low rent. He, he made friends. He finally could imagine his life um, continuing, his life getting better. He finally imagined he could get over the trauma that he'd suffered in Nigeria. So he really wanted to stay in Libya. He had absolutely no interest at all in coming to Europe. Um, but, yeah, Colonel Gaddafi, when the, the NATO back coalition was moving in on him, he made this this threat um, that he would send boatloads of migrants across the Mediterranean. I mean, this was playing on Europe's fears. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. For years, Gaddafi had profited from Europe's fears of, of migrants and the other. I mean, he made an awful lot of money with deals with the EU, deals with Italy to try and stop people leaving the Libyan coastline. So when his former allies or his former partners turned on him, he was like, right, okay, I'm going to send all the migrants in your direction, knowing full well that it's really played in the European sphere. So that's Majid was just caught up in caught up in, the, in those global politics. He was forced onto a boat against his will, and it just sailed off. He didn't even know where he was going, where this boat was going, where he would end up. It was just this, this terrifying voyage into, into the unknown for him, and and um, he's had a, a terrible experience in in Europe. Um, but um, I think if you look at the book, if you look at Castaway, not one of the five people. I feature wanted actively to come to Europe. None of them did. If you look at the Syrian families, the Syrian individuals and families, uh, for one, the Hanan, the, the 50, you know, early 50s now, mother of four children, um, she loved Damascus. She built this life in Damascus that, you know, was her, her, her dream. You know, she'd spent her whole life building the, the beautiful home, um, a, a good education for her children. Her husband, Talal, had um, built this business from scratch. They, they loved it there. It was their life. And they were forced to leave because the, their neighborhood was shelled. So they wanted to go to Lebanon. They wanted to go to Lebanon because it's a familiar language, a familiar culture, a familiar religion. They wanted to stay within all those things. And uh, Hanan would tell me she felt like she could stand on a hill and see her home. And that gave her the hope of return. And that, you know, that is what she wanted. 
But the problem was in Lebanon, there was nothing for them there. Lebanon has, has absolutely been, been the, the systems in Lebanon have been overwhelmed by the number of refugees there. I mean, it's enormous. One in five, um, I think one in four or one in five, I think it's one in five uh, people living in Lebanon now are Syrian refugees. So, of course, that's an enormous strain on the education system, on, on any sort of public work systems as well. So she couldn't find school for any of her four children and her husband couldn't find work. And if you think about our lives, those are the two building blocks for a life is education and employment. And if you can't find those, and they tried for a year to, to find those, I mean, what do you do next as a parent? You, you try and find those opportunities elsewhere. So I think that's another good example as, as well of, of, of the factors that do force people to move to Europe. And I think that it's really, really important that we understand these human motivations for doing these things if, if Europe is going to come up with some policies which are really going to have some sort of impact. Now, there's another fear that Europeans espouse about refugees, which will have some resonance here in the States, which is a fear of jobs being taken um, and given to non-natives, essentially, and, and other sort of economic fears. Um, what are the realities behind those fears and what are the misconceptions? There's so many misconceptions and you see it. I mean, I'm from, I'm, you know, I'm based in Brussels now, but I'm obviously from the UK and you know, this idea of migrants taking the jobs is, has been so strong in the UK for so long and is you know, one of the key reasons why Britain voted to leave the European Union. I mean, there the debate is very much about, I'd say it's very much focused on on intra-EU migration. So it was it was this idea that people from Eastern Europe, from Central and Eastern European countries, from Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, that they were coming to the UK and taking jobs. So it wasn't so much focused on the refugee crisis. But yes, I mean, this is something that does... Um, come up again and again and again. And, you know, there are, of course, you know, various statistics um, and arguments that show that, you know, well, the European Union, most countries across the European Union have massively declining birth rates. And, you know, they're only going to sustain their economic growth if there is um, increased migration. And, and some argue that when uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel opened her doors to to refugees in, in 2015, that it was a somewhat pragmatic decision um, because Germany was in need of, uh, of, of a workforce and, and, and by and large, there is quite a lot of skill coming in that workforce. And so, you know, there are various statistical um, arguments you can make for, for the need for, for, for labour. Um, but I think that what we've seen again and again and again uh, in Britain, in the, in the, in the Brexit debate, in the, in the debate about Britain leaving the EU, in the same debates we've had in the Netherlands, in France about migration, is that facts and figures just simply don't have any impact on what people feel. And unfortunately, the populists, nationalists, and xenophobic parties are absolutely expert at tapping people's emotions, and especially the emotion of fear, which although it's not a positive emotion, it's still a very strong emotion, and, and exploiting that. And the mainstream parties really, really struggled to, to come up with the same emotion on, on the other side and, and really tackle that. And I think that's what's going to win the argument in the end. And I think also very interesting to get to slightly slide off topic. But if we look at the elections we've had recently in, in the Netherlands and in France in the last couple of days, it is that the individuals and the parties who argued with equal passion. Um, and further for their values. So, you know, Macron in France, you know, he's spoken out in like with, with glowing language about the EU. He's really praised Angela Merkel for her approach to the refugee crisis. You know, he's used that same level of emotion, um, the same in the Netherlands that the Green Party in the Netherlands, which saw its support absolutely saw in their recent elections, again, use that same level of emotion. And so you're seeing that's being effective. That's what's being effective in, in countering that, that sort of far right narrative statistics 
just they've lost their power. I think you've seen it in the US as well. I mean, facts, figures, you know, this whole debate over, you know, fake news, what's real, what's real. People just don't believe it anymore. But what can you believe? You believe what you feel inside. You believe your own emotions. Um, so, so that's what people go with. And that's really why I, I wrote Cast Away in the way I did as well, was because it's the human stories and that hopefully taps into people's emotions. So there are some statistics, there are some figures and all these arguments in there, you know, so people can have them. But I think, you know, my my real aim was to portray the human side of it because I think that is what has more impact than any figures and things. Yeah, yeah. And your book is um, deeply impactful. I was trying to think of something that didn't uh, undermine how moving it is, but it is, I mean, the stories in there are remarkable. And, and I want to ask you about a couple of them. Although I, I want to ask... Um, you talk about moving through the EU when people come to, say, Greece and they would like to get to Austria or Sweden, which is difficult for a variety of reasons, one of which is that there's the countries in the EU that are called Schengen countries. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, Schengen. Um, essentially, those are countries that you can move between their borders without any difficulty. And some countries in the EU adhere to that, others don't, um, which makes for a complicated system for people coming in. And it so happens, I believe, that most of the countries that people might land in uh, tend not to be Schengen countries. But what emerges from this story, I, I am a great lover of like World War II era spy novels like Alan First and David Downing. And hearing stories about people moving through Europe now, about refugees moving through Europe now, trying to get to certain countries, sounds exactly like stories in those books about people moving through occupied Europe. Um, there's this strange resonance between the now and the 1930s and 40s, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at, you know, the, the station in Vienna, I mean, that's those stations in Vienna have always been this, this crossroads of Europe that's been, you know, east and west, north and south. Well, it was so resonant in, in those decades, these post-war decades, when you know, Europe was split and, and, and the capital was split. And, and you saw Vienna take that central role again at the, at the height of this movement of people in, in 2015. I spent some time on, on, on the station platform and it was just, you know, it's extraordinary. You just saw, you know, you just saw life happening before you saw, you know, these refugees just camped out outside, women nursing their, their babies on, on, on the curb and, you know, sort of men taking off their shoes and socks and trying to rest their feet. I mean, it, it was just extraordinary. You could really, you could sort of close your eyes and, and, and imagine that it was, you know, exactly the same scenes that, that you'd seen, all, you know, those, those decades ago. And, um, and yeah, and it, you're right, absolutely right about the European uh, systems, the system of Schengen, um, also the, the Dublin Accord, whereby a refugee has to claim asylum in the first country they arrive in, otherwise they could be sent back to. It's incredibly complicated. It's incredibly complicated to me, having written a book on it, you know, <laughs> it still remains quite baffling because each EU country then has their own way of applying those laws. So imagine what it's like for a refugee or, you know, an asylum seeker or migrant, whichever term you want to use. And, you know, how baffling it must it be for them? You know, there's this idea that, well, you've arrived in Greece, you're meant to stay there, or you've arrived in Italy, you're meant to stay there because of Schengen and because of the Dublin Accord. You know, that doesn't mean anything to them. It's just, you know, well, it's just, you know, the human imperative. I need to keep moving to find the safest place where I can build a life for myself and my children, or myself and my wife, or myself and my family back home, my parents back home. So it's that imperative that keeps them going rather than, 
any understanding of the intricacies of the EU's asylum system. And reading the book, I got this sense that there's almost this palimpsest-like quality to the way this happens, that there is this veneer of regular life, people going about their daily business, whatever that might be. But then, you know, turn a corner and there are people running down a train track trying to find a spot they can hide for when a train stops that they might hop on to get to another country. And it made me wonder if that is the way it is or, you know, is it sort of a hidden life or are people in Europe aware of it? I mean, people in Europe are very aware of it. I think that's that's really interesting what you're saying. I mean, it, it does come to you at very, very strange times. I remember, you know, I was living in, you know, I live in Brussels, but I commute back to the UK very regularly because my, my family are there and I take the Eurostar under the under the channel, the Eurostar train. And, you know, a number of times the, the train has um, been forced to stop um, and you get the announcement of, oh, you know, we're, we're you know, we're having to search the train for um, the possibility of migrants smuggling themselves aboard the train. So, uh, you know, it, it became quite extraordinary, really, that, you um, that, uh, you know, you did have this sort of, and everyone on the train was like, oh, you know, another migrant, you know, on the train. And this is somebody who's risking their lives. I mean, people die, they get run over by the trains, they smuggle themselves in horrible containers. And, you know, people just sit on the train and, you know, look at their watches and wonder when they'll get to their meeting or if they'll, you know, get in time, back in time to catch the tube. And there's this whole other human drama playing out somewhere, you know, maybe on the roof of the train. In one instance, they thought there was a, a, um, a migrant running across the train, the roof of the train. And so everyone's like, you know, uh, you know, can you hear the, the, the train? And, it, and it's just this, this juxtaposition which, which you do have. And I think, you know, you have that everywhere. People see what they want to see. You know, you, you have populations who are sort of excluded from the mainstream everywhere. You know, it's in various different countries. And in Europe, it's no different. You have issues with, with the Roma population in, in some countries where, you know, they really are outside of the, of the mainstream. And, you know, people choose to see that or, or don't choose to see that. But what was stunning about 2015 was it couldn't be, certainly in some countries, it couldn't be ignored anymore. You know, you went to your, you went to the railway station where you'd always go and, and, and people were, were absolutely everywhere, you know, and, um, you know, people couldn't ignore it anymore. And so people were very aware of it. I mean, there is an awareness. But what really strikes me is that in a lot of places where you you have the, um, you have really sort of anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-refugee sentiment are the places which don't really have a huge problem with it. I mean, that's always struck me again with this this idea of, of populism. It's it's the fear of something rather than the reality of something. I mean, I went to the far south of the Netherlands um, ahead of their elections there a few months ago, and this is you know one of the the, the safest places. Really. It's one of the richest countries in the world, one of the richest countries in Europe. And it hasn't had any any terrorist attacks. It doesn't have a huge influx of refugees. Nothing. You know, I went to the far south, this little pocket where you know nothing really happens. They have their own economic issues, but that's domestic. And they all spoke about fears for their security. And that's why they didn't want refugees or they didn't want migrants. But there were no threats to their security. Nothing. Nothing at all. So it was this perception of this threat that was there. And I think that's always striking when you look at, you know, voting patterns. It is the places where there are very few migrants or refugees that, that, that vote for these more populist parties, whereas places where, you know, it's more integrated, people have more interaction, um, that, that tend to vote in, in a much more liberal way, which I, I think is, is absolutely fascinating. Well, like you said, you just need to get hooked on a feeling, in the words of the great B.J. Thomas, and that's all you need. You don't need reality. Exactly. Um, so I, I want to ask about some of the people in your book. The uh, stories are really incredible, and I want to actually talk about the Eritrean woman um, named Sina, both because her story is so remarkable and also because Eritrea is not a country that comes up in the news a lot here. Uh, I don't know if that's the same in Europe, um, but I certainly learned a lot 
about life there, reading your book, and then and also about her story. Um, and and maybe we can just start by explaining briefly who she was and why she needed to leave. Mm. Yes, you're absolutely right about Eritrea, and, and again, that was a that was a big issue in, in the peak of the crisis. Is that you know it was, it was widely seen that only sort of Syrians and Iraqis were deserving of our, of our sympathy, and everyone else, well, you know, nothing can't be that bad. But you know, you do have these situations around the world which are absolutely horrific. I mean, um, the situation in Eritrea. I mean, Eritrea is consistently ranked on various indicators like press freedom and. Um, and uh, corruption is just being around the same level or slightly worse in North Korea. I mean, it's a it's a dictatorship. The United Nations have done various reports which have come to the conclusion that there are crimes against humanity being committed there. And um, one of the key issues is, is forced military conscription. So every young person, unless they're from some sort of tiny elite, um, at the age of around 15, 14, 15, goes into military training. And essentially, when they graduate from school or university, they're in the military for the rest of their adult lives on absolutely minimal pay. And the government essentially controls every every aspect of, of their lives. And, you know, I've read various reports on, on this and, um, you know, but I didn't really understand what that really meant until I, I sat down with, with Sina, um, the Eritrean woman you spoke about, and, and she told me about what her life was like. You know, so she fell in love with her teacher at university. Uh, his name was Danny and they got married um, but then the government, the dictatorship there, just suddenly decided that that Danny shouldn't shouldn't work as a as a teacher anymore. He should go and be a border guard. So the government just then bang decides, okay, you're not a teacher anymore. You are going to put on a uniform and go and stand on the Djibouti border. That's your job from now on. You know, you have no say in it. And so the husband and wife were separated then by 800 kilometers. Um, if Sina wanted to 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 travel to see Danny, she had to get permission to do so. You have to get permission. Uh, he wasn't even allowed a mobile phone. You know, people, military conscripts aren't allowed mobile phones. So that's what life is like. I mean, every single tiny decision that we take for granted, you know, calling your loved one, you know, deciding whether, you know, you, you know, what job you want to, to do or, or where you want to live. That's all out of your hands. That's all decided by the government. Um, so that's essentially the situation they found themselves in. Um, so Sina was was working as a chemical engineer. Um, she had been allowed to, to work as a chemical engineer. She was very, very good, incredibly bright. So the government thought, well, we'll put her to use as a chemical engineer. But she was on the, the military conscription salary of around 30 euros a month. So it's still, you know, in the system that the United Nations has compared to slavery. And yet Danny was, was on the Djibouti border. And then what happened is Danny got uh, thrown into jail, uh, which, again, is uh, is something that um, the United Nations has um heavily criticised Eritrea for his arbitrary detention. And the reason Danny got thrown into jail was because he was in the same building where an illegal prayer meeting was being held. So there are a number of sanctioned religions in Eritrea. If you don't follow a sanctioned religion, well, that's grounds to be incarcerated. Um, But Danny wasn't, you know, Danny did follow a sanctioned religion as an Orthodox um, uh, Christian, which is one of the sanctioned religions. But he was in the same building where a Pentecostal meeting was being held. And so for that crime, he was thrown into jail. And... um, through various um, circumstances, which obviously are explained in the book, in which, you know, he escaped from prison and him and Sina went on the run together. And um, during that time, she she fell pregnant when they were on the run together. And so it was in it was in January 2015 when um, when she realized they realized that they couldn't stay in Eritrea any longer because then their child would basically, well, they'd eventually get caught by the military police. And their child would be would be born in jail and, and basically the end of life for all three of them. So it was when she was six months pregnant that they decided to, to flee and they, they crossed the border and went from Sudan, South Sudan, 
to Uganda. And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, her, what happened to her is just, it's just really, really horrendous. I mean, to imagine somebody going through everything she went through when she was, you know, that pregnant as well. I mean, eventually in Uganda, they were separated um, after a few months trying to find a smuggler. They gave most of their life savings to a smuggler. The smuggler said to, to Sina, well, you get on a plane. She's nine months pregnant by this point. They said to Sina, you get on a plane, fly to Istanbul, then you can you can get to Europe and Danny will be on a plane tomorrow. You know, you should fly first because you're more pregnant or some sort of excuse like that. So Sina got on a plane, flew to Istanbul and the smuggler disappeared with all the money, all the plane tickets, everything. And Danny was stuck in, in Uganda. So here she is. She's nine months pregnant. She's separated from her husband. She's all alone in Istanbul and Turkey. And, you know, she's got no idea what to do. Um, so, you know, I thought her story was was particularly poignant, um, mostly because also, I mean, one of the other aims that I set out to do when writing Castle was to answer some of the questions that I had in my head as well uh, about people who make the journey. And one of them was, why would somebody who's pregnant get on a boat where they could drown? Because there were some absolutely harrowing, harrowing stories um, of women who give birth in the um, sinking smuggling vessels. I mean, just... You know, I was uh, pregnant uh, when I started um, writing the book. In fact, and I had a had uh, my son um, just uh, just just before I got the book contract. In fact, so you know, I, I was pregnant. I was reading these stories about women giving birth in these sinking smuggling vessels, and, they, and then they both die. And having just gone through the, the birth experience myself, I just I couldn't imagine that. I just that just filled me with absolute absolute horror. So I wanted to find somebody who had had to make that decision to get on a boat when they were nine months pregnant, when they were going to give birth. So I could understand why somebody would put themselves and their baby in that kind of danger. And with Sina, you know, then then I, I finally understood it, you know, because she did get on a boat. She got on a boat three days after her due date. And that was because she had been tricked by the smugglers. She was all alone. She was terrified. And she trusted somebody. She trusted the person who said to her, look, you know, what's going to be the safest thing for you? Give me your money get on this boat. It's a big boat. It'll be a big boat. You'll be in Greece in an hour. You'll be able to give birth to your baby in a safe, clean European hospital. And so she believed him. And I understand now why, why she believed him and, and why she got on that boat. Now, you know, as you know, that, that boat went down and, and Sina, you know, almost drowned. So, you know, yeah, she's, she's been through so much. And again, you know, she and I were, were, um, pregnant at the same time our sons were were born within two weeks of each other wow. um so yeah so um so i saw so many parallels as well with what we were going through in terms of you know dealing with those sort of very human uh, experiences of, of being a new mom and 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 um you know trying to you know be a good parent and, and bring up our children well but then she'd been through all these astonishing things um at the same time which i just you know i was in awe i was in awe of her 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 survival instinct absolutely in awe there's a sentence you have getting back to that question of why people make the choice to do these seemingly insane things that I, I really like that you you talk about smugglers selling an impossible dream to people who had no choice but to believe the lies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what really struck me as well is um, you don't believe you can't believe it will happen to you. And I think we all we all do that, don't we, in our, in our daily lives. You, you always think, well, you know. You read about horrible things in papers having people and you always think, well, that's that's not going to happen to me. It's the same with, um, you know, the terrorist attacks that we've had in, in Europe. You, you know, you, you see them and they happen very, very close to you and you think, well, never happened to me. But I did actually happen to be at Brussels Airport last year when it was bombed. So, you know, that's sort of, like, oh, it can happen to you. But, you know, I continue to go places because even though I know now that it can happen to you, you can be there, you still do it because that's the way a brain, a mind has to work. Otherwise, you simply wouldn't function in life. And that's what always struck me with the um, 
with the, the people who were getting on the boat. So they refused to believe that the, the worst thing would happen to them because they didn't have any other choices left. I, I use the example as well of, of Muhammad. Um, he's one of the five, uh, one of the three Syrians in the book. Um, just, just briefly, he you know, basically fled Syria to escape military conscription into Assad's army, made his way to Libya, um, with the, and his uncle you know, convinced him to, to go to Europe. But um, you know, he was waiting in a smuggling house in, um, in in a Libyan city um, in the same week that there was, at the time in 2013, there was an absolutely horrendous boat sinking. It was the worst one so far on, 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 on the Mediterranean Sea. I can't remember the top of my head how many people died in that one. I'll have to look at my book. It was something like 130 people died in, in that particular incident. I mean, it was absolutely horrific. You had bodies washing up on, on, the, co- on the coastline of Lampedusa. And so Mohammed was in this... Um, smuggling house waiting to take the boat and word got round that the boat had just sunk on exactly the same uh, stretch of sea and I said to him well, well how could you still get the boat he said oh we didn't believe it we just didn't believe it the, the reports were there they all had their you know they had their smartphones but they just were like no it can't be true can't be true because they couldn't let themselves believe it otherwise they couldn't make the journey and they had no other choice left so I find that really really interesting the way that the the, the mind works you know that that sort of sense of denial that that allows them to keep moving forward. You just you just have to keep believing that it's, it's not going to happen to you because you know that's that they again there's no other choice left for them. Can you tell me about how you met the people that you chronicle in this book? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, obviously as I said, I spent many years um, reporting on on the refugee issue and. Um, picked up various numbers and contacts on the way, but um, only only one of them, um, that's um, Nart, uh, another Syrian, um, was somebody I'd actually met during the reporting process because it, it's actually, it was very difficult to find people who, who wanted to take part in the book and for completely understandable reasons. Uh, and people have arrived in Europe, they've got so much on their plates. There's dealing with the trauma that they've been through, which is absolutely horrendous. There's the whole process of trying to, integrate into a country that's completely strange and unfamiliar and there's you know the European integration efforts are you know well yeah pretty poor so language lessons vocational training it's all very very difficult so so there's a whole lot going on in people's lives and also you know I wanted to speak to people who spoke English which obviously narrows the the search window somewhat as well I mean the reason there was you know when you're really delving into somebody's you know life thoughts everything they've been through I didn't feel I could do that, really do that through a translator. I felt like, you you know, I really had to be able to speak one-on-one to to, to these individuals. So, you know, that narrowed the, the field a bit as as well. So, you know, to be honest, a lot of people didn't, you know, a lot of the refugees I met on the way didn't particularly want to to take part in, in the project uh, for completely understandable reasons. Um, so, yeah, the five individuals that, um, that I did um, get in contact with, so as I said, one of them I'd met in Bulgaria in 2013, so that, that was not... And the other four, um, it was through um, NGOs mostly, um, helped me, put me in contact with people. So I was basically looking for individuals that illustrated different aspects of the crisis. So we've spoken already about Majid, who um, was forced into the boat in Libya in 2011. And for me, that surge from Libya in 2011 marked the start of what we term the refugee crisis. So I wanted an individual who was caught up in that. I wanted a mix of men and women. Um, I wanted a mix of people who'd gone the Turkey Greece route and people who'd gone the um, Libya Italy route, uh, a mix of ages. Um, so it really was a, a process of, um, of of finding, you know, NGOs helping me find the, the people who who sort of fit those criteria and who would be willing to 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 speak to me about it. 
And have you remained in touch with them subsequent to the book? Have they read the book? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've remained in touch with all, all five. I mean, you know, some of them feel like, you know, family to me now. It's um, it, it was particularly, you know, as I mentioned with, with, with Cena, it was particularly poignant because, you know, our sons were the same age. So when I was doing my interviews with Cena, I just rented an apartment in Sweden for all of us. And we just put our two sons on the floor and they played together. Well, they were in the <laughs> one sort. They sort of, you know, waggle around together. Yeah. And, you know, we do the interview and we, you know, we talk well into the night, not just about you know, her journey, but then we start talking about things like, you know, vaccinations, weaning the children, breastfeeding, all sorts of things. So, you know, there was that real connection um, that we had uh, because of, our, of our, our children being the same age. And the same with, with Hanan, the, the Syrian woman in, the, in her early 50s. Again, you know, because my son Nathaniel was so young when I was doing the research, he came along with me on all the trips. And um, that actually, that really helped in terms of, um, you know, getting a personal connection, I think, with a lot of people. Um, so, you know, she would play with him and she was, you know, she um, would um, give me advice on on, on parenting and because she brought up four children. So she had lots of tips on how to get him to sleep and stuff. So, you know, I, I built up a connection that went well beyond just a journalist and, and a subject, which has obviously some ethical issues as well. You know, how do you then, you know, separate that sort of level of motion with, you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're cross-checking, fact-checking everything as well. So that was another another challenge. But yeah, I've stayed in touch with, with all of them. Um, and it's been really interesting to see how they've adapted in sort of different levels to, to their lives in Europe. I'm not sure exactly how to ask this, but I wonder if having a child and writing this book, well, how about this? Do you think it would you would have approached it differently had you not had a child? I know that's a sort of a hard question to answer, but I just, you know, I have a two-year-old and I'm sorting through the ways my emotions and intellect have changed since having her. And, and I know that they have. And this is such a deeply emotional subject. I wonder if you're able to think through how that impacted the work at all. I think, I yeah, definitely. I think it would have been a very, very different book if I had had Nathaniel at that around that time. He's also you know, just turned two. Um yeah, it, it made me, it gave me obviously an, a much greater understanding of what you would do to keep your child safe and to give your child a, a future. You know, um, you know, you understand that in the abstract, certainly. I mean, I, you know, I've written about similar stories before I had a child. And I understood it completely in the abstract that you want to give your child a, a, a decent future and that you want to keep them safe. But uh, I, I hadn't understood the sort of the, the emotional that the sort of really base emotional level that goes down to that, that becomes the driving force of what you want to, you know, of what you want to achieve in your life. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. It just made me understand that with even more clarity. And especially again with, with Cena's story about how, you know, everything, everything they did was about making sure their son was not born into a country where his life was already predestined where he was not born and had to live in Eritrea and, and go through everything they had been through. And so all the risks they took were to give him a safer and better future. And, you know, and, and the risks they took are, are huge and, and you end up putting your children's lives at risk in order to give them a better life. And just the idea of having to make that decision is just horrendous. And then also I think it's the same for anybody with children that when you see these images of children suffering, they hit you in a, in a completely different way. And again, it's mm. something that, People told me before I had children, but you don't really realize it. So when I see, you know, a terrified child cowering behind razor wire on the, on the Hungarian-Serbian border, I, I see my son. I, I see my son in that situation. And, and, and I just think, how can we be letting this happen? You know, you know that, that child is the same as, as our children. You know, we, we, we should not be letting this happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you mentioned at the end of the book that you have a career-long interest in migration and refugee policy. And I wonder if you could just tell me where that came from. Yeah, it's, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I mean, I started being interested in it when I, I started off in my career in Cambodia doing an internship on an English-language newspaper there, the Phnom Penh Post. And um, I, you know, I just happened to end up doing a story about an, an Afghan man who had gotten into a smuggling vehicle somewhere in Afghanistan. I can't remember the exact details of the story now thinking he'd end up in Germany, and he was transferred between various smuggling vehicles. He was fleeing the Taliban at the time, and somehow he ended up in Cambodia. I mean, it was absolutely bizarre, and it was just this this guy who's just, his life had just been, it was completely taken out of his of his hands, and here he was in Cambodia, and he was stuck in this sort of, you know, Kafka-esque situation where he couldn't escape. And I think for me, it was because I'd always, I've always taken my ability to move, for, I mean, I've always absolutely, you know, grasp that and see that I've always traveled and I've always worked abroad. I've always lived overseas. Um, you know, as soon as I could, I put a backpack on and, and went traveling. And, I, I, you know, it's something I value so much, that freedom. And, and I see people who, who don't have that freedom, who are not allowed that freedom, whose choices are, are completely limited uh, simply because of where they were born. And I've always really bristled at the complete, uh, that, that real unfairness of, of that. Um, so I think that's probably where it comes from is, is my you know, is, is, is how much I value my ability to, to move freely and how much I, I cannot imagine being in those situations. Like, you know, I remember visiting a refugee camp on the Thai-Burmese border, you know, where refugees, you know, people are born there, you know, and I met a 16-year-old girl. She'd been born on this camp on the on the Thai-Burmese border. And, you know, I remember asking her what, what, what she thought about her future. And she just started crying because there's no future. She's not allowed to leave that camp. She's not allowed to work. There's nothing she can do. She can't leave the confines of this massive sprawling refugee camp in the middle of the jungle. So she she has no future. She sees no future. And, and for me, that's terrible. I mean, she's incarcerated for nothing, no other reason than, than, than the place she was born. There would be no crime committed by anybody, neither her nor in her family, nowhere that, that, that justifies her incarceration. Yet there she is. Yeah, the abandonment is a word that kept coming up in my head reading your book. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, this, uh, there was a, a really, you know, I think a really poignant thing that Majid, the Nigerian guy, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I don't believe in democracy anymore. He told me, he said, you know, I lived in Nigeria where there's democracy. You know, my, my father got beaten to death. I went to Libya, you know, where, you know, Colonel Gaddafi was, was a one party state and I was happy there. So I came to Europe and I was all ready to embrace Europe and I came to Italy and I've been treated so badly there but I don't believe in democracy anymore. You know, I've been treated worse in democracies than I have anywhere else. And so this, this idea that, you know, this, this young man who is, should be full of promise, he's a very bright young man, you know, um, very eager, very enthusiastic, you know, he speaks perfect English and, and, um, and he's just, he's stuck in Italy. He can't find any work. He's been persecuted because of his, his color. And, you know, it's instead of welcoming this person who could be a great contribution to society, we Europe has made this person feel like, you know, democracy is an awful idea, but it's just, you know, it's, it's a bad thing. So what sort of message is Europe sending um, people when, you know, you've managed to crush the hopes and dreams of one person so quickly? Yeah, well, we're not doing a great messaging over here either at the moment. So, you know, we, we share that with Europe. <laughs> um, I wonder if... I, may, I don't know if it's possible, but if there's any happy note we could end on, um, basically wondering whether there are countries who are doing this right. I mean, I know that in the book, you know, you talk a lot about how, I mean, Germany has admitted 
a lot of refugees, although it seems that their handling of people in the country is complicated and and not as good maybe as it could be. Austria, Sweden, these are places people like to go and and do have certainly better policies than others. Um, who do you think is handling this the best? Well, it's difficult to say uh, uh, looking at countries now because it's very difficult to look at a country and say, well, yeah, they're doing it well now. I mean, you could, you know, I do still believe that um, Angela Merkel um, had, you know, the right intentions when she opened the borders. I think that was a very brave moral decision that she made. And it's a real shame that nobody in Europe followed that lead. Um, also, Sweden has historically been very welcoming refugees. But in both countries now, it's not, you know, going so well. I mean, Sweden is now enforcing some pretty harsh rules um, for, for uh, asylum seekers, refugees living in, in the country, and there's a lot more suffering going on because of it. Um, Germany, you've seen a little bit of backtracking on, on the commitments because of the politics. Integration efforts are, are faltering somewhat. I mean, understandably, I mean, the number they've got there now is a huge, huge, huge challenge. So there is going to be some, some issues. But where I take hope, as you see, municipalities and cities you see some cities doing a really really good job um which could you know be replicated elsewhere i mean i use an example of a belgian city that's just just not far from um, the outskirts of brussels it's called mechelen and they've got a very forward-thinking mayor there who has implemented various policies um for the reasonably small refugee community that they, they've welcomed um but i think it's, it's a really really positive example so Tell you a little bit more about Mechelen. It's sort of it's sort of situated halfway between the big Belgian cities of Brussels and, and Antwerp on the coast. And 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 during the, the Second World War, it was Mechelen's train station where most of the the Jews um, from um, Belgian and surrounding areas were um, deported to the to the concentration camps. So it has this this very very difficult awful history. Um, um, but the mayor, you know, he's really used the history of the city. To, to, to give this message of, well, this is why we need to have a moral responsibility now. You know, our, our history demands it. And he, he's looked at the issue of, of, of refugees and he's come up with this policy. Well, you know, the best thing I can do is to get, you know, the refugee population, the local population to meet each other. Because, again, this is again and again where you see the fear is when they don't meet each other. So they have various policies which aim at getting the two communities completely integrated. So, you know, all the new arrivals, the refugees have been asked to join the local scout troop, to join the local football team. They have a buddy system there. You know, when they opened a, a reception centre, they didn't just put it on the outskirts of town and close the door. They invited local residents to come and see the centre, to come and meet the refugees. And there's this whole idea of making sure that people got to know each other. And then you get rid of the fear and the fear which is at the root of all, all the problems that we see. And um, another thing the city did that, you know, this is one issue that comes up again and again and again when I talk about Castaway, is that, um, you know, people in the audience will say, well, it's not fair that the refugees get, you know, housing when I've been on a list for three years and I still haven't got housing, which is which is a fair point. You know, these are fair points. I think that the worst thing cities, municipalities, governments can do is simply ignore citizens' concerns. That's how the far right, you know, gets hold, is if people don't feel like their concerns are being listened to. So in the example of Mechelen, every single new initiative they've introduced with refugees, and that's um, free language lessons, vocational training, um, subsidised housing, a, a local resident can apply for the same thing. So that completely negates that argument, well, they're getting it, but we're not, because all these policies are open to all, which I think is incredibly smart. I mean, most people don't take up the policies, but it's there, and that negates the argument. So I think and there are other cities and municipalities across Europe which are setting really, really good examples. And, you know, in the long run, that's going to work out much better for the security, for, for the economy, 
it, 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 you know, the, these cities are going to be the ones that thrive rather than the cities that decide to just completely shun an entire population because history shows us that is not that is not what works. That is not what makes you a safer place if you completely alienate a population or a community. It, it does the absolute opposite. So I see positivity there in some really, really good examples, which I hope will catch on and be shared elsewhere. And also the, the big thing that I, I see so much positivity in is just individuals' um, reactions. Everywhere I go and speak about the book, somebody will come up to me and tell me about a community movement to help refugees in that area. I mean, in Brussels itself, I'm a member of a, of a Facebook group, Community Support to Help Refugees, I think it's called. And every time somebody puts a request on this Facebook group for, you know, a, 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 a sick Syrian needs to be driven from a small town in Belgium to a hospital in Brussels or, or a family needs a, a stroller, you have like 10, 20 people volunteering. It's so heartening to see this community support that, that you get for the refugees. And I just wish that it was represented more um, by the political parties and, and, and by some sections of the media. Because, you know, you see the the anti-migrant sentiment, the anti-refugee sentiment. You see that everywhere. And you see political parties really reflect that. But you don't see this sort of this, this real positive movement. And I think as equal amounts of people are, 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 would be happy to help and welcome more refugees than are the ones who are uh, against it. But you just don't see that reflect. And I want to see more of that reflect. And, I, and I'm hoping, as I mentioned earlier, when you see the results of some of these elections recently, that the really sort of strong positive messages are winning voters. So I, I see some optimism there as well, that if politicians do um, take that, that moral stance and, and speak about it with the same level of emotion, the same passion that you, you, you have on the right, that works. That works because that's what people want. And, and I think that uh, hopefully we'll see more positive examples of that in the future. All right. Well, those are all my questions, Charlotte. Um, that was great. And again, a really, really wonderful book. So thank you for writing it. Okay. No, no, my pleasure. Thank you very much for, uh, for the interview. It's been fascinating. All right, that's the show. As always, thanks for listening. You can read more about Charlotte's book and those of all the Bernstein finalists at nypl.org slash Bernstein. And to check out all of the interviews with them, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or whatever other cool podcast app I don't know about. And wherever you can, leave us a rating, preferably a good one. I appreciate the feedback. Next week, Bernstein Award finalist Janine DiGiovanni on her book, The Morning They Came For Us, Dispatches from Syria.